when people say the Treaty of Versailles is part of the reason for Hitler's rise to power, people don't call you a Hitler sympathizer, right? Right. That's just standard, like, history. They might have at the time. They might have at the time, but like now <laughs> yeah. they don't. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. Gene Bajalan is back on the channel after uh, The Purge. Uh, Gene, the Great Purge. Uh, yeah. I'm doing good. How are you doing, Doug? I'm doing okay. Um I like your brick wall, but the, the the blur is good as well. I suppose I have um, what do you have tarp behind me? Just a just a black tarp to cover up the mess of my room. That's very professional. I've just blurred the background to my office, so yeah. So um, yeah, you and I, Gene, are both sinners. Um, uh, we're we've we've both uh, we're we're heretics. I think we we've both uh, gone to the dark side because we both have published in compact that's true magazine. we're now You're, fascists yeah the uh the, the the piece that you uh wrote is called the poverty of anti-imperialism mm-hmm. and um the, the i wrote some screed against uh the contemporary left we uh, in your essay let's just jump in here shall we um sure. you wrote that in maintaining this manichean moral binary the anti-imperialists inadvertently reaffirm the basis upon which neoconservatives and liberal internationalists seek to exercise imperial power. And this anti-imperialist uh, Manichean moral binary was, I guess, between the United States as an imperial power and whoever it was that the United States was having their military adventure with or yeah, upon. Or more generally, whoever the United States is messing around with on the international scene, whether that's diplomatically, economically, or militarily. Although, of course, militarily is the one that everybody thinks about. And the reason I wrote the piece was largely to get people to think about moving the debate away from assessing the veracity of particular claims that are made about human rights abuses or, you know, very unpleasant things happening in countries that are not aligned with the United States. And the reason I was critical of the way the debate often focuses on debunking, for example, you know, some of the things that the Assad regime has done or the Iranian regime has done. The reason I was critical of that is that I think We should obviously try and debunk lies that are told in the mainstream media, but it's not always the case that the imperialists, when making a case against a country, are fabricating every single accusation. And if we 
primarily base our critiques of American imperialism on the basis of the fact that, well, if the Americans are saying bad things about this regime, those things must be lies, and therefore that regime must be good. We're debating on the same ground as the liberal interventionists and uh, the neoconservatives in that, well, if those accusations are proven true, you know, if people are being tortured, if there are, you know, very nasty things taking place in the, a country, if those are proven to be true, then what's the argument against some kind of quote unquote humanitarian intervention? So my critique isn't that we shouldn't debunk things, but that that is a second order issue when it comes to opposing the American war machine. And I think there are better grounds than, to put it crudely, you know, shilling for quite indefensible regimes. There are better grounds to oppose American military intervention or diplomatic pressure or what have you. And I think those grounds, you know, the first ground is you, is, is a technocratic argument that, you know, American intervention doesn't work, makes things worse, et cetera, et cetera. But that's still debating on the ground of the interventionists, saying the problem with the intervention is not the intervention itself, but the fact that we'll, the United States will do it poorly. My argument is that it's really irrelevant whether or not the accusations against a particular regime are true or not, to whether we should oppose uh, the American war machine. That is to say that our opposition should be rooted in an opposition to the military-industrial complex at home, which is fundamentally an amoral institution. And it's an institution that every time American power is exercised, it's deepening its control on American society. And, you know, we could give the example of the Second World War, where, you know, even those on the left, on the Marxist-Leninist left, the anti-imperialist left, you know, might, might be in favor of America intervening in, in that war. But we have to understand what was the legacy of the first uh, second world war for the United States. Well, after the end of the war, it's not like the military industrial complex disappeared, but it became this huge institution that perpetuates itself in the United States. So the issue is less about whether or not the regimes that are being targeted by the United States are good guys or bad guys, or whether there are, you know, let's say, let's say that theoretically you could conceive of a situation where the United States might be able to intervene militarily and alleviate human suffering. But that misses the point that every time you exercise that power, even if it's for, quote unquote, a good reason, you're further entrenching the power of the military industrial complex at home, or more broadly, entrenching the power of the quote unquote progressive state, which uses imperialism, uh, not simply as a mechanism to extract resources. And in fact, in a lot of cases, I think you're missing, people are missing the point when, it, when they focus on the extraction of resources. There are also internal reasons to promote a war to transform society, to use it as an opportunity. If you look at the war on terror, uh, 
you know, if the Americans had just been interested in getting Iraq's oil, they probably could have bullied Saddam Hussein into giving them the oil. They certainly were able to bully Gaddafi into doing it uh, at, at a certain point. The war on terror was not s simply a war about extracting resources in a very crude sense, but is related to dynamics within American society as well. Uh, so uh, my argument was that we have to fo uh, we shouldn't focus on basically trying to defend the indefensible because you know debunking things are important, but if if we become kind of dogmatic in believing automatically that any accusation by the United States against a particular regime or the media against a particular regime, assuming that's priori a lie, mm -hmm. then when and if you know a more complicated picture comes out, I think it leads to political disorientation. People become disillusioned with left-wing politics, arguing that, oh, well, people will only, you know, only believe things that fit their priori beliefs about a particular country or a particular American intervention. Our opposition doesn't need to be based in that. Uh, it simply needs to be based in, we have to focus ourselves on fighting the military industrial complex at home. And whatever arguments people are putting forward for uh, some kind of intervention, we should oppose them dogmatically. But I think that's a more difficult thing for people to do because you know, if you if there are people suffering in the world and Amer there's a case being made that American intervention could help, I think to a lot of normal people, that's going to sound like a, a a good idea. Whereas we should be t talking about, let's say, a bigger issue, which is that, sure, maybe this intervention, you could come up with some liberal grounds for supporting it. You could come up with some grounds saying that this intervention will be a successful one, unlike previous ones. But... The problem is that's just feeding in to this ongoing uh, war machine that we have, which doesn't really care that much about where the intervention is taking place. It's more interested in securing its contracts, securing, you know, it's it's not it's not some octopus with a kind of central command per se, but rather it's a, you know, a thousand and one different mini grifts by contractors trying to extract money from the U.S., treasury so that's where we should be focusing our position and avoiding to a certain degree getting into these debates where people end up looking ridiculous because they're defending regimes which aren't, aren't necessarily defensible you know we could let's say be opposed to the iranian regime and say you know people are protesting in, in iran for good reasons uh, there it isn't just a cia plot i think a lot of anti-imperialism ends up a, overestimating the co uh, competence and capability of the United States to execute success successful foreign policy ventures, especially in parts of the world where the United States doesn't have long historical uh, experience. So, uh, you know, we, 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 uh, we don't want to end up in a conspiracy theory where everything is a color revolution and everything is a, a a langley conspiracy mm -hmm. but we can we can still say like sanctions on iran don't help anything in the situation diplomatic escalation with iran doesn't help with anything in the situation and in fact many of these regimes that are opposed to the united states 
themselves are in a kind of symbiotic relationship with the United States in that opposition to the United States forms a basis for uh, the Iranian military industrial complex, which is a lot smaller than the United States' military industrial complex, but it, within Iran is an extremely powerful institution. You know, these, this is a global system of imperialism where you have hegemonic and counter-hegemonic powers, uh, but those hegemonic and uh, counter-hegemonic powers are, at the end of the day, capitalist powers. So we, we can say, look, we don't want the United States to escalate conflict with Iran, but that doesn't mean that people protesting in Iran are CIA stooges or that the Iranian regime is somehow good or is going to pave the way to socialism. I mean, you see this with the multipolar debate, which in my opinion is really just a diversity, equity, and inclusion program for imperialism. It's like, let's have, let's have a more diverse set of imperial powers around, uh, around the world. Um, mm -hmm. And instead, we should be focusing at home. And when we talk about foreign countries, we should try and learn about them rather than fitting them into our pre-existing narratives uh, uh, and rather try and understand them on their own basis and the dynamics that shape those societies and what groups are in, uh, you know, are in operation there rather than trying to uh, conjure from nothing this whole fantasy about East versus West, you know, the global South versus the global North and rather, you know, refocus ourselves onto critiquing the military-industrial complex, American imperial power on a kind of meta level that, uh, if you want, I can use a metaphor, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in Lord of the Rings, Frodo has to take the one ring and he has to take it to Mount Doom to destroy it. And because it's terrible, it will end the world, right? But on the way, Frodo does use the one ring uh, to hide from the Nazgul and things like that. But of course, every time he uses it, he falls deeper and deeper into falling under the influence uh, of the one ring. The American military war machine is like that one ring, even if it can be mobilized for good, as in the Second World War. Every time it's mobilized, it drags us further and further down uh, into a kind of uh, state where we're subject to the military industrial complex. Well, let's walk through all that again. Um, one thing that uh, I want to go over is how your piece could be interpreted as a critique of um, Clinton doctrine uh, on humanitarian interventions, mm -hmm. um, which was formed uh, during the Kosovo crisis in the 90s. And so it seems to start there. Like we, if we just reject the um, doctrine of humanitarian interventions, then we won't have to focus on these claims about war crimes or crimes mm -hmm. against humanity or, you know, um, like for instance, the, um, the, uh, the, the gas, uh, the gassing of the Syrian people or um, what, whatever the, the claim might be, because we won't, need to be countering a doctrine that would empower the United States to intervene on the, that basis. And, and th there are lots of very straightforward reasons to reject the, the doctrine of humanitarian interventions. One of which is that it, it just is a violation of international law. 
It's like a, a way to justify. Well, even, even even the violation of international law is problematic because you know if we base opposition, for example, in a violation of international law, you know, for law, for example, people talk about the Iraq War being illegal, right? Well, if the UN had signed off on it, like they did with Gaddafi, would it have been any better, right? Does the fact that uh, the international community, a community of capitalist states, decided to go all in on, on, on a particular country, does that make it legitimate? Well, of course, from the perspective of international law, it does. But for socialist opposing, so, uh, you know, opposing uh, imperialism and capitalist powers, the legality of a particular U.S. intervention really is beside the point because you have to ask the point, a question. If the Iraq war had been signed off by the U.N., would all the people opposing it have stopped opposing it? Should they have stopped opposing it? And I would say they, whether the no, people- I mean I I oppose the um, that uh, and uh, also the um, Desert Storm, which mm-hmm. was completely justified by, you know, it was signed off on by the UN. But the question is, um, what does the law actually say about military conflicts and when an, an invasion or or an action is justified? And then, what is the basis that you you know that the UN acts upon like uh, just as a parallel example um, when the Supreme Court decided to stop the recount of votes in 2000 that was a legally you know uh, that was a legal act but it it was clearly um, not actually following the law because it was you know an incoherent decision made for political reasons and that was transparently so so um, we might look to the law as a guide to see well what what is justifiable according according to international law and then to see the, the, the degree to which the un doesn't follow its own rules perhaps what, what is the justification for i mean i mean like like you said I mean, the UN's with, international law with with desert storm obviously well, no what i asked uh, asking a question what is the justification for military intervention according to international law I mean, there there are cases, for example, uh, when the UN Security Council has voted. There are provisions on the prevention of genocide, et cetera, et cetera, that provide. Okay, to- so those are like in line with. I mean, you could um, make it the humanitarian could, intervention uh, yeah. doctrine. There are, you know, what the what resolu- you know, whether countries are complying with resolutions of the UN, and obviously the UN uh, doesn't apply pressure equally i mean the justification for going into iraq was that iraq wasn't complying with the un weapons inspectors uh the united states went in anyway before there had been a authorization from the un but um you know you could have conceived of a situation where it would have been justified under international law because iraq was in violation of particular UN resolutions there you know there are other 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 cases for example if you know a country invades another country again you know the UN can provide a basis for collective action which is quote unquote legal under international law right but mm-hmm. you know the legality of something under international law doesn't necessarily mean that it's something supportable and and again i think that that m- m- focusing on international law 
while it might be useful rhetorically to expose hypocrisy, for example, look, this country is violating uh, these resolutions and no action is taken, but this country is violating resolutions and, and it gets all of these uh, sanctions and military attacks on it. So, you know, there's a rhetorical use for it. But again, the legality or illegality of a particular uh, military action uh, according to international law whether that's justified on humanitarian grounds. And I would note that neoconservatism isn't really that much difference. It's, uh, you know, neoconservatism, uh, at least its public face, was a democratization pro uh, project, right? Mm -hmm. So the legality of something, I think, is certainly worth discussing in terms of exposing the hypocrisy. But again, it shouldn't be what we root our opposition in, because e even if everybody signs off on a particular military action, do we necessarily want to support it? Right. I mean, it just seems to me that the one right, that, that the right of intervention, according to the UN, comes down to self-defense. Yeah, self-defense. I mean, there, there, there's self-defense, you know. And again, like, the UN can pass resolutions, right, as it did. Right, but I mean, according to the law, the UN, when they, when they pass in, uh, humanitarian interventions, the point is to... It's to be to intervene in an immediate way to create like a conditions for peaceful negotiations and not to justify an, an invasion or the, an occupation. I mean, none of those things could be justified by international law. The reason why I'm bringing up international law is not because I think it will work, but because if we don't have any recourse to any principles at all, we won't be able to determine what we actually want. Um, well, the principle so. is is not the the principle is, as I put at the end of the argument uh, article, is that we have a dogmatic opposition to the exercise of American military power overseas, and that can be quite a difficult thing to do, you know, for uh, uh, at times. So, so that would require the breakup of NATO. Yeah, that you know, like for example. So, like, for instance, if England is invaded by France or by Iran or something, then the United States would not – we would oppose the United States coming to to the U.K.'s aid uh, to help uh, fight back against uh, uh, the invasion. Yeah. I mean, it's quite simple that, you know, that – and again, that might be a difficult situation. Maybe the French Nazis are coming to, you know, make everybody in England speak French and – and, and eat croissants. Like, eat croissants, probably <laughs> an improvement on everybody's mm. health. But, you know, th that's the emotional blackmail, right? You know, that the military industrial complex will try and emotionally blackmail you into supporting it. it. And would this apply just to the United States or any nation would any no nation. longer have? We would the, the left would oppose any nation's um, ability to use military force in defense of another nation, but only. The, the 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 left would hold the only time the military force can be justified is in defense of your own nation. I mean, again, it might be understandable, but I mean, if you go back to the First World War, right? I'm no, I was thinking about the First World War. Right? Going, I mean, how that how that all these treaties and. And assurances that that different nations would back each other up in terms of their military conflict led to it's, the First World War. I mean, it, it it I mean it didn't necessarily lead to it, but it led to its 
rapid expansion it, it right. you know it tied every it tied all these countries into networks of military solidarity which ended up uh you know leading to a bloody confl- con- con- conflagration mm-hmm. and the socialist movement basically destroyed itself uh, but especially in germany mm-hmm. where it rallied behind the kaiser with in the war credits right and mm-hmm. For the Germans, when the war you know, was happening, it was presented as a war of national defense against, you know, uh, France and, and 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 Russia and encirclement, et cetera, et cetera. You know, mm-hmm. there will always be arguments that a war is defensive, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can argue the intervention into Afghanistan was not, it wasn't just America willy-nilly going and invading a country. It was in response to 9-11 and, and the fact that uh, the people who did 9-11 were in Afghanistan. Uh, but yeah, yeah, but yeah, they weren't Afghan. They weren't. Afghan. <laughs> they weren't Afghan, and it wasn't done by the Taliban. And no, it wasn't. And there was no reason to think that the occupation of Afghanistan would stop another terrorist attack like the one on 9/11 from happening again, given that it was sure done but by it, a network. But you of, could make a plausible argument to to why to the American public why that war was. Uh, justified. No, to the, rhetorically, you could justify it, but it was not justified on the grounds of self-defense, really. But it was certainly signed off on by the UN. Uh, mm-hmm. I, yeah. Um, so I do, I mean, I do agree. I just wonder uh, um, uh, if we were to imagine that it was possible to support struggles for socialism around the world, would we want to apply the same standard around military intervention if it was in the name of socialism uh, as we would now in the case of capitalist states that are going on. I mean, maybe, maybe, but we don't have any socialist struggles that. (laughs) No, we don't have any. That's all theoretical. Yeah. It's it's largely theoretical. Like, I I mean, I have in the past, I defended the U S presence in Rojava on the grounds that it was protecting the uh, Kurdish, uh, you know, uh, experiment there and stopping, a kind of greater crisis, largely with another NATO member, Turkey, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I recognize that's kind of a very problematic position to hold, and it's one which I find difficult to defend to a certain mm-hmm. degree. Um, you know, on, on, on some grounds, it's defensible. I mean, at the very at the very least, you know, that is an example of a crisis where it's a crisis between two NATO members over a particular uh, region. And so maybe you could make maybe that's defensible, but it might be an inconsistency in my uh, position. Uh, and maybe it's not defensible, and I'm willing uh, to accept that. What I would, for example, like to see for concretely in Syria is rather than the you know the U.S. you know be having an open-ended military intervention there, but you know some kind of diplomatic, uh, peaceful diplomatic. Uh, disposition by the United States that, you know, allows everybody to leave Syria. But I realize that's kind of a utopian uh, fantasy. So, you know, we don't really have any power to influence events overseas. And so, you know, because we don't have any power over our own state. Yeah. So our, our primary objective is to, first of all, try and sort of weaken the hold of the progressive state. And that means, uh, mm-hmm. attacking the military industrial complex and 
that can be difficult with cases, you know, if you if everybody opposing the U.S. is a good guy and everybody, uh, you know, support seeking the support of the U.S. or getting supported of the U.S. is a bad guy. Um, you know, that's like a very easy it's an easy way to look at the world. Right. It's no. Oh, yeah. You don't have to think about you don't have to think about the moral complexities of developments outside of the United States. You just, you have, yeah, I saw this with the Iranian protests, right? Mm -hmm. I like, I went on Twitter the day that the news started really filtering out of Iran and all the usual suspects, I'm not going to name names, but they all had their hot takes about this being a color revolution and being, you know, uh, the people on the streets who are protesting are CIA agents. So they deserve what they get, blah, blah, blah. Right. I think, you know, because they have a very simplistic in the uh, view of the world and they don't um, they don't really care to learn that much about uh, the world. They have a they have a preset view. America bad. Everybody else opposing America is good. And I just don't think that's a very that's that's not going to be a very successful rhetorical tactic. Right. Especially mm -hmm. when people see, you know, people are familiar with the complexities of particular uh, societies. So my position would always be it's like we don't even need we don't you know, maybe there's CIA intervention. Maybe something is a color revolution, whatever. Right. It's like from our perspective, that's totally irrelevant. We're powerless to affect the world, as you said. Mm -hmm. And that's because we're powerless to affect our own state. And so our primary task is to you know, dismantle the, especially the coercive armored state, which is the United States military. Mm. And so it might be kind of more difficult to, 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 to deal with because, you know, you want to express solidarity with people protesting in Iran, but you also at the same time don't want to provide, you know, cover or justification for military or diplomatic escalation. Uh, with the United States. And that's a difficult position to be in because you'll get hammered by both sides. On one side, you'll be called like you're buying the imperialist propaganda and the lies and you're a stooge. And on the other side, it's like you're just inhumane and you just want to let people suffer. And my position would be, it's like, well, I mean, let's do the trolley, the trolley thing, right? You know, like the, the overall cost of the United States empire is very heavy on the world, right? Mm -hmm. And even if it might alleviate something in a very specific circumstance, let's look at the total. Let's not get bogged down uh, in the details and let's look at the overall impact of it. It's effect on American society. It's effect on the American economy. It's effect on the places around the world more generally and say, look, we have to, we have to have this dogmatic opposition to American military intervention as far as possible. And that's, you know, that's a tough line to hold right and I, I want to tell you a really simple a very simplistic story um that i think was kind of took hold in like 91 after the collapse of the soviet union in in america on the right maybe most of all that you know after the collapse of the soviet union um we were at the end of history um the liberal democracy was going to stride across the globe and um, one of the ways that might have done that is by just absorbing uh, as many nations as possible, or maybe eventually all of them into NATO. Like mm -hmm. we wouldn't, we wouldn't have without a need to um, 
without uh, an ideological enemy or division in the world, but only under U.S. hegemonic power, everyone would have been absorbed into NATO. NATO would have taken on a different character and purpose. In in reality, uh, what would have gone on is fair and equal trade between nations, working out of disagreements on a diplomatic and political level. Um, you know, democratic control over all of society and different nations. In in the movie Network, there's a similar kind of utopian liberal vision put forward, like, you know, it, the whole idea of nations and peoples is going to be put aside and everything will be managed by but this is, dollars. This is, and, this, and, this is just an old, this is just an old idea, right? This is the old liberal fantasy that, you know, the, the free market free trade world will lead to peaceful intercourse between nations, that the bourgeois revolution will sweep the world. You'll have, and, and the form of this bourgeois revolution will be national. There'll be different nations and, and different nation states, and those states mm -hmm. will interact with each other peacefully. There'll be, you know, uh, progressive bodies. I mean, that's the philosophy behind the UN. That's the philosophy behind the, uh, League of Nations. Heck, that's my kid went to South Korea a few years ago, mm -hmm. uh, and you know he did that through an organization. The name of it is escaping me, but the whole purpose of the organization was to build bridges between nations, build mutual understanding, so that commerce and trade and 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 war, that commerce and trade could be could be supported and and become the means in which we would avoid war in the future. It was a very but the, that's the liberal fantasy because the problem yeah, right. is capitalism, right? right? And the problem with imperial, you know, our view of imperialism is basically derived from Hobson, mediated through Bukharin, mediated through Lenin, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a specific understanding of imperialism as synonymous with colonialism and this very specific historical moment in the late 19th century where we have this rapid expansion. Uh, of empires. But, you know, if you go back to Marx, I've been reading Spencer Leonard's uh, new book, and I think, you know, this is an important point that, you know, war in capitalism isn't just about conquering and extracting resources from the around the world. It is rooted in the kind of anarchy of international relations, but also in the dynamics inside a country and how nationalism and war is used to consolidate the power of the state. And we see this, you know, historically. Why did Russia, you know, one of the reasons Russia went to war with Japan in 1904, 1905, was this, you know, idea of a short, victorious little war to try and, you know, get the, uh, you know, get the, uh, you know, get the um, Russian regime back on track. Look at the Falklands War, right? What bloody use are the Falklands Islands. I know there's like maybe oil there now, but enormous amount of money spent on going to retake the Falklands Islands by Britain in 82. Well, what was the function? What? How did that play out, whether intentionally or not? Was the enhancing of the Thatcherite state, which, you know, helped secure a huge electoral victory uh, for uh, Margaret Thatcher after, in, a in a period of deep economic crisis, and this war was a god, you know, a godsend for her in many ways. And uh, mm. you know, it's certainly you could make a liberal justification for it that there's a place called the Falklands Island. It's Brit it's British, it's part of Britain. Argentina wants it, but the people on the island want to stay part of Britain. 
And so, you know, based on the principle of national self-determination, Britain was well within its rights to retake uh, that island. But the point is, what was the function of that military operation? Well, it was to further consolidate the Thatcherite state. Not the only reason, not necessarily the reason that's for, first and foremost in everybody's mind, uh, but that's how it plays out, right? That's mm-hmm. how it ends up playing out, that every time you... And, you know, again, go back to my area of specialization, the Middle East. Mm-hmm. You know, in 1914, the Ottoman Empire could have sat back and let Europe murder itself. They could have they could have sat back, got rid of all the treaties that sort of subjugated them to various, like, unfavorable international regimes. They did this, right? You know, as soon as the war broke out, they abrogated the capitulations, which were basically uh, ways in which foreigners, especially Europeans, could, you know, interact with the Ottoman Empire without being subject to its legal system. It placed, you know, these treaties placed limits on, uh, on, you know, the Ottoman Empire's ability to raise its tariffs. You know, there were treaties, you know, all these kind of like uh, unequal treaties. It could have sat back and done that. But the elites in that state saw the war as an opportunity, not simply for taking ground or resources, but for revolutionizing society and rebuilding society in the way that it want, that the elite that took over in 1908 in the Ottoman Empire wanted to remake it. Mm-hmm. Right? War as, you know, they were very much influenced by this German militarism, war as a vector for social transformation. So when we look at imperialism, I think, you know, people are very much focused on this uh, Leninist notion of imperialism, which I think is a legitimate way of talking about imperialism, right? Don't Mm -hmm. get me wrong. Uh, But I think it misses out other discourses around imperialism, particularly that deriving back to Marx, which talks about imperialism as part of this Bonapartist project about enhancing the power of the state uh, and the executive Mm. over uh, civil society in the parliament. I mean, just look at the American Civil War in that sense. I mean, obviously, we would support the American uh, Civil War, but the outcome of that Civil War was a huge enhancement of the power of the uh, 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 American state. Mm. So, you know, there are... You know, it's a difficult one to contemplate, but when we look at military intervention, militarism, imperialism, we should look at the domestic things. And I think the right wing is actually often better at looking at the domestic aspect of imperialism than uh, the right is because uh, the left is because the left, you know, we see we we see in many sections of the left, the axis of class struggle has kind of been replaced by this core periphery uh, notion that you have the core, the West. Western Marxism versus the East and the global South and the oppressed nations of the world, which in practice really ends up having people, you know, rally around their states. Their they're, states. They're, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, um, if we talk about Russia today, right, mm-hmm. the left wing argument for supporting Russia is that, I mean, it assumes ridiculous proportions with people proclaiming Putin leading the socialist revolution. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's like some bonkers stuff, but the argument is that, you know, whatever the nature of the Putin state, you know, he's resisting American imperialism. Mm -hmm. And so we should be supportive uh, 
of America uh, of of Putin that 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 there are legitimate national security reasons why Russia went into Ukraine, and my point would be like, well, maybe there are quote unquote legitimate or understand national security national, reasons. But right? why I mean, do I care? Why do I care about those? Take right. another example. Let's go back to let's talk about Japan. Right? Mm -hmm. Were was Imperial Japan wrong when it critiqued the Anglo-Saxon global order for not recognizing their sphere of influence in Manchuria, for having a racist international system, for operating racist colonial regimes across the region? It's not wrong, right? Mm. But... Uh, we saw what Japanese empire looked like, right? It was brutally yeah, exploited. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, so, you know, their, their justifications may have been legitimate, but the, the ability of the Japanese state to lead an emancipatory sort of revolutionary war, it never could have happened because at the core of the Japanese state was this brutal militaristic uh, armed forces that was driving... Uh, driving right. when we look at for example the conquest and colonization of manchuria there were many there were not many but there were elements on the left that initially supported the manchurian project as a utopian project as one in which that the, the, that japan would build a kind of multi-ethnic multi-racial state with all these different nationalities living together that soon was obliterated by the fact that the underlying economic basis of Japanese rule in Manchuria was not this kind of emancipatory project, but was like a settler colonial slash resource extractive uh, 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 political project. You know, mm -hmm. it's like it's like people who endlessly debate, oh, well, could the if the Nazis, if Hitler had just worked with Ukrainian uh, and Belarusian and Polish nationalists better. He could have successfully defeated Stalin. Well, that misses the entire point of what the German state was all about during the Second World War, right? Mm -hmm. That will so to believe that the United States military intervention, even if it makes justified reasons, it's going to end well. It's like, well, look, what is the state that is doing this, right? It might have these like very humane, defensible uh, reasons, but like, look at what what it's going to what it's going to devolve into we saw that in iraq right mm -hmm. uh the opposition to the iraq you know if the americans had been successful in turning iraq into a democracy you know would we have been against that right if no if we, but you know but they could never, never do it happen. no but that happen. couldn't happen because the the i mean what does that mean into a democracy, right? I mean, like, well, let's just say that the, you know you turn Iraq into some kind of liberal state where you know minority rights are guaranteed, people have like access to the ballot box, you know, there's a vibrant civil society, people aren't getting you know executed on the street, you know, if they create a stable democratic order in Iraq, you know, uh, that would have been a great thing. Right, but, but the you, point you, is, the only way you can get to even the bourgeois democracy is through, uh, I think, and this is my knee jerk. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a political scientist, but it seems to me that the only way you can actually institute even a bourgeois democracy uh, in 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 a in a region is through the uh, self organization of the people of that region. You can't you can't impose that from above, and and you're never the reason you can is because you don't want them 
to have you don't want them to control. be yeah you don't want yeah, them you can't to have the you know the rabble in the country be dictating to the the big old u.s state how things are going to run that's not how that can that can happen i mean you know in in so the united states would always be in opposition to yeah democratic I mean, movements. It's, it's whatever the rhetoric is the nature of the imperial intervention. Now you can make the case not because the U.S. people would always be against the democratic. No, it's, and it's not even because the U.S. state and members of that state individually are against that particular project. It's right. just that it's an unrealizable project for a variety of different. Right, uh, because uh, a Bonapartist state can't lead revolutions for democracy. Basically, They're the Bonapartist state arises when the revolutions fail. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't. I mean, you can is make that the, the right it, way to think about it. I mean, I think I think I mean the way I understand it is the Bonaparte state. Uh, yeah, is it's to put it in modern terms, you end up with a kind of situation of gridlock, and the only way out of this gridlock is the Bonaparte uh, state or revolution, and usually the Bonaparte state is the way that it goes. Now you can make the argument. That, well, you know, there were examples after the Second World War where the United States at least facilitated, quote unquote, a liberal democratic transformation. Yeah. But those were often in societies which already had a pretty developed uh, civil society, Japan, or, or, you know, had progressed quite far in modernization, uh, you know, Japan. Right. Uh, and um, you think it would have been possible in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union to do something like that? I don't think the United States, I think there was a historical moment after the Second World War where yeah. you had the Soviet Union, you had this kind of competition, which basically forced the United States to rebuild its former enemies to allow them a certain degree of economic and political autonomy as part of this geopolitical struggle, right? Mm -hmm. But that those conditions don't exist anymore, and the the capacity of the American state doesn't exist anymore. Like there was a historical moment where the United States, uh, yeah, because, yeah, we were so dominant after World War II, and the and there was an upswing economically, and there was a the need of the mil the, the 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 it was militarily advantageous to rebuild Japan. It would get provided. And of course, this involved repression as well. You know, the great reversal sure. of Japan, the destruction of the labor movement, et cetera, all those kind of things. But that was also countered by the fact that, you know, there was uh, a kind of a, a progressive constitution established, you know, mm -hmm. the, a progressive state, a, a kind of liberalized progressive state with an, mm -hmm. I mean, this is also important, with an economic basis to sustain it. You know, mm -hmm. Japan didn't fought the war for a co-prosperity sphere, lost, got nuked, only to have that co-prosperity sphere given to it by the United States within the context of the Cold War and the suppression right. of the Japanese left. Yeah, by by providing uh, manufacturing to, for the military and largely yeah, uh, by U.S. Know, military by by opening its markets. But you know, like the story mm -hmm. of Japanese, you could talk to Deep State Cuba about you know japan japan and asia's economic uh, uh miracle or what what mm -hmm. what have i mean and you could even look at china in that way right china mm -hmm. you know dengism mm -hmm. who, which uh, everybody's into today was facilitated by the american empire within the context of trying to defeat the soviet union in the cold war you aggravate the sino-soviet split you, uh you open up 
China to trade. You give them, you know, you give them access by the 80s. They're building factories, et cetera, et cetera. They're integrated into the world capitalist system. And, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're basically breaking up the, uh, the Soviet bloc, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so, you know, ironically, I think, you know, Japan, China's ex- impressive economic growth is in part a result of uh, American empire. And, uh, the problem that America has now that it's treating China like a big Mexico when China is actually a big Japan. Right. That right now, like, you know, it's too big for its boots and, you know, that the Cold War is out over, et cetera, et cetera. So now America's panicking that, oh, we've unleashed the dragon, as it were. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the American bourgeoisie is schizophrenic because they all want access to the Japanese market. But also, but again, mm-hmm. even Chinese some, market, Chinese the market. Trend. Yeah. Yeah. And again, with the military industrial complex, whether or not they believe war with Japan, uh, China is like imminent. Maybe they don't believe it, but it's a good excuse to extract money from the United States Treasury. Uh, it's a good excuse to enhance themselves. I mean, because what would the United States military do if there was a peaceful international order? I mean, then what's the justification for maintaining that military? Well, I mean, we, in a way, we're kind of seeing it. Um, but uh, but let, I tell you what, um, that's a good good question to end the first half of this podcast on and we'll take it from here for the second half is that mm-hmm. a, okay if you enjoyed this conversation please do consider supporting us on patreon our patrons help to make sure that sublation media can continue to provide interviews videos books and articles that are critical of the left from the left If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both.